Welcome to the Washington Union Alliance Church Podcast, an archive of our recorded sermons. We're a Christian and Missionary Alliance Church located in Newcastle, Pennsylvania. For more information, go to wuac.org. About, now, she, I have to say this, paraphrase, say this, she is not here today, but about every three months ago, my wife sits on the front pew. That's about every several months she sits on the front pew, and she holds a note written during my sermon. Can anyone see it? <laughs> You're talking too fast. You need to slow down, okay? Um, it's normally written out of a, uh, ripped out of a notebook piece of paper, and it's carrying, or it's like one of the notes, one of, written on one of those back of those notes of those pieces of paper on the front pew. And then she'll write in big print, slow down, in all capital letters. Now, she's not here, but she would nod in agreement that, that, is, uh, that that's something that I absolutely need in my life at times to slow down. And it's more than just words. Yes, I can get talk very fast, but it's more than that. I can slow down. I can be a fast talker, admittedly, especially up here. And she knows me too well. There's a deeper message, though, with this slow down message, and it's all too familiar, and it's a picture. It's unfortunately an indication of our society in 2023. When will we slow down? Have we ran ourselves too busy? What would that indicate? What could that indicate about us? What are the implications for our spiritual lives with this? Have we ran ourselves too busy? What are the implications of our lives, and what will this actually do as we seek to bless the people around us? If we're actually seeking to do this, what is it going to happen? And I think most of us gathered here today are aware of just how quickly our society is changing and how quickly our society as it relates to just going fast. We all are sitting in the society. We all live in this society, not in a vacuum. We live in the culture. We tend to run from one task to the other. Our inboxes seem eternally full. There's consistently on my phone, whether it's a social media app or email or some other icon, there's like this little red symbol inviting me and yelling at me to open up that app because I have to know what is going on on that little red icon, on that symbol. And sometimes, and even um, whether it absolutely vying for my attention for me to open it. Turning on our devices, seeing a person on the screen that we're talking to, sometimes it's several people in these little boxes on the screen that's talking to us. Several people in several different boxes from all over the country, no need to travel to meetings. (laughs) Our to-do lists seem to grow longer and longer as we have more time-saving devices at at our disposal in the history of the world, yet we feel as though we have less time to get things done. So I was just thinking about this reality this week. Think for a minute, 15 years ago. Think of 15 years ago, 2008. You would have never dreamed that in the near future you would be, I mean, 50, 20, let's go 20 years. It's probably a little bit, 20, 20, maybe longer than that. Anyway, you, you would not be able, you, in, you, in the near future, you wouldn't even dream about making a phone call while you're in the, riding in the car sending email electronically while you're riding in the car, which I do not advise to do, while you're making phone calls, navigate from your phone to the screen in your car about where you're going. Owning a machine that allows you to record your favorite TV shows and watch them whenever it's convenient for you, and then you can fast forward through the commercials. That's probably 15 plus years, but streaming is more of your long lines of streaming your favorite shows and then watching later without having 
to even watch it when it comes on the screen. You can watch it and rewatch it back later. Calendars stay full. We do more and try to get things done. We pile up the task. We are quick to get to work, daycare, get home late, check phones, cycle. And it kind of goes on and on and on. How do we fit this in, you wonder? How do we fit this in to bless people when this is the reality for many of us, the cycle of this? I wonder. The truths of the Bible are timeless, and it's so is the great commandment to love God and love your neighbor. It's timeless. God knows the uh, culture in which we live, the time in which we live, yet the command of the Bible commands all of the Bible, and the commands never change. They speak to us. And the command that we've been zeroed in on is loving God and loving others. And that's a command, even in today's world, as we seek to even wrestle with our spirit to try to fit this in our schedule. Even in today's world, we must be about that. And if you haven't been with us, welcome. I'm glad you're here. We're in a series called BLESS, from the acronym BLESS, B-L-E-S-S. All about blessing the people around us. Everyday everyday ways to love your neighbor and change the world. So the idea is BLESS. Begin with prayer, listen, eat, serve, and story. And we're walking through this, what it looks like for us to do this as a church. So we're walking through this and unpacking for this. And God, we do this because God has done an amazing work in our lives and we seek to bless the people around us in our conversations with people, our neighbors who we come in contact with who do not know God, and even some who do know God as well. We want to bless those around us. And many of us have come to that kind of understanding or like sharing our faith can be, can be a little bit hard at times. Maybe we feel a little bit of a tension with that, uh, with sharing our faith, but it's about blessing the people around us. And the reality is, is that over the course of the scriptures, God makes it really clear eight times that he says, love your neighbor as yourself. Eight times across the scriptures, love God, love your neighbor as yourself. And he repeats himself. It's so important to God that he repeats himself, but he makes it a command. In fact, it's not an option. It's a command to love your neighbor as yourself. Loving God. In Mark 12, Mark, in the book of Mark, love your Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your what? Strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as what? Yourself, there is no commandment greater than these. And you see, when we, the church, get this right, it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing, understandably so, that there are sometimes neighbors that are a little bit more difficult. God makes it a command and makes it a command. He knew at time, I believe that God knew at times that we would need to revisit this. And as we're doing through this series, revisit this command, be intentional about loving our neighbors. And so as we have walked through this, It's our prayer as a church, it's our collective prayer that we dream that God would use us and we use all of us to be mobilized to love God and intentionally loved our neighbor through this series. And we looked at it last week about the idea of praying. And if you were here, you got a little bit slip of paper about praying for your next day. If you didn't or you missed that, that's okay. Just be praying intentionally for people that you come in contact with regularly that do not know God far from God, and let's intentionally pray about those people. I believe that God desires us to be the kind of people, as the church goes, the community goes, and we want to be that kind of church, right? As the church goes, the community around us goes, and we might be what the kingdom of God in all of its fullness be, that kind of kingdom church, amen? So we believe that God desires that from us as the people of God, and many of you are already doing this and praying for your neighbors, and I'm grateful 
for that as well. You see, our God is consistently on the move, and He wants His people to be on the move as well. And it's this desire that wherever we go, wherever life may take us, wherever it's the work, maybe it's the cubicle, maybe it's interacting with people at our job, maybe it's uh, interacting with other parents at daycare. We are about the mission of befriending and blessing the people that we come across. And that's God's, that is God's desire for us as a church. I will bless you, and then you will bless others with that blessing. And it's the chief of desire of the church that it's the prayer of the church, and my prayer for this church, but as the church, my prayer would be that the onlooking world would say of the church, faith, hope, and love, they exist in that person. As the onlooking world looks at the church, I pray that we would be a church that really exhibits faith, hope, and love. You see, even the world is dark, the world is dark, and yet it's the church who is to be the light in a dark world. And my prayer is that we would be a kingdom-minded church. And we know that the church has a lot of imperfections. It is not perfect. But God has a beautiful plan and a design for His church. And you may be, you may be thinking, well, why the church? Like, isn't it messy at times? Isn't it imperfect? Doesn't it feel awkward at times? Doesn't it feel just, just strange? It feels messy a lot of times. I'm reminded of this, though, that God works in and through imperfect people to bring forth His plan into the world. Oftentimes that looks messy. You see, the church is God's plan A of reaching the world. God has not scrapped his plan A. We are the plan A to reach the world through the Spirit of God by his power. We are his plan A to reach the world. The local church is the hope of the world through Jesus Christ by carrying and embodying his message and word and deed. The message of the gospel comes with us. And it's the unique calling of the church, the called out ones, as the New Testament calls it, the called out ones, as that word's used in the Bible. To be the people whom God has chosen and to carry his message and his mission to the world and the community around us. We highlighted the word be. I just want a few points from last week. Highlighted the word be of bless and we begin with prayer was last week's message. And we are reminded of the words of J. Edwin Orr. Whoever, whenever God is ready to do something new for his people, he always sets them to praying. And when it comes to prayer, we can read all the books about prayer. We can read the history and revival stories and treasure up every biblical insight on prayer and read the passages, read the Bible about prayer. But we begin, all of our prayer begins by understanding and knowing that God the Father wants to meet us and His fatherly love wants to meet us in a relationship with Him by means of prayer, and we pray for the world around us and pray for, intentionally pray that God will meet our ordinary lives with this extraordinary plan. And you may be thinking this morning, like, you know, there's not a lot happening in my life. My life is not very extraordinary. I go to work and I come home and I try to put food on the table and um, just want to say that God still meets us. Ordinary lives with this extraordinary plan he meets us, and maybe you are a stay-at-home parent. Maybe you don't travel. Maybe you're a grandparent and whatnot. Anything in between. You see, in God's view, though, no life or story is too mundane or unimportant in his plan. God intends to meet us and intersect his life with ours by means of prayer. The great renewal stories and revival stories of all the moves of God have all been birthed out of a life of prayer. So we pray for our neighbors. And we say that and we pray that. You see, the only thing, the only time the disciples of Jesus are recorded to ask Jesus to teach them something is to pray. The only time is how to pray. 
And Jesus gives us a model of how to pray. He says this in Luke 11, 1. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. And so those, that Lord's Prayer, maybe you've heard of it before, those 57 words. Jesus himself prayed so that his disciples, that you and I have a model for praying. The first part of the prayer reads like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom what? Come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And as disciples, we pray that God, the kingdom, God's rule and reign, come and be seen in all of its fullness here on earth. We pray for that. Part of this praying, this petition, is that we petition and pray that the kingdom of God would be realized more fully in our own personal lives for the sake of our neighbors and for the sake of our own personal spiritual lives. We pray for that. And we are citizens of a kingdom of God. And part of his kingdom, we pray that we would be people who help aid and help people know that the kingdom lives in us. For people to say, the kingdom of God exists in that person. The kingdom of God is a part of that person's life and story. And we're praying that the kingdom be realized more fully through us, a heart check of sorts, so that we can bear witness and be more fully about the person of Jesus. And we do this by repenting, turning, walking in the light, abiding in Jesus by the Holy Spirit, and repeating that process. We continue to repeat and repent and turn and believe and walk in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And we repeat that process. So today we are on the L of bless and the notion of listening well. So we're going to go a few places today and uh, several places. So I just want you to know that um, we're going to go to James chapter 1, 854 of the Bible in front of you. We're going to go to James 1 verse 19 first. 854 of that Bible in front of you. Um, and uh, if you want to go there, it'll be on the screen behind me as well. Hey, and if you're visiting with us, we at this church value the preaching, Washington Union value the preaching and teaching of the scriptures. Make sure you find a church that does the same, that preaches and teaches the scriptures faithfully. And uh, it's on that, it's in your Bible and it's going to be on the screen here behind me. James 1.19, James 1.19 says this, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to what? Listen. Slow to speak and slow to become angry. Let me read it again. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen. Slow to speak and slow to become angry. And we'll finish that here in just a minute. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. James is the writer of this book. He's the half-brother of Jesus, and if you know anything about James, the letter is extremely practical. Uh, the dominant theme of the book of James, it's a short book, it's that real faith can show up in one's everyday life. Real faith shows up in everyday life. It's very pointed, very short book, uh, very extremely practical about this book. And James is seeing, saying about this, about what it means to be a disciple what it looks like to have a living, visible, and productive faith in a fallen world. And 54 times over the course of the book, it tells us an imperative, a meaning to do something. I mean, you think the half-brother of Jesus would might have like some in, you know, some in or like some rank, like, hey, I'm the half-brother of Jesus, right? But notice the first few words, if you're there, notice the first few words of James as he begins to write this book. He says, James, a servant of God, says a lot about him. He's related to Jesus, but still has a, a position of extreme humility. A guy who ate at the same table, 
as Jesus? Probably. Probably shared, I presume, he shared the same toys. Watched the development of his half-brother. James could have begun the letter. James from the sacred womb of Mary, congenital sibling of Christ, his brother, who shared in the same bathtub and dinner, dinner table as Jesus himself. A sibling of Christ, confident in the Messiah. He could have said that. But he says he's a servant, and I love that. Um, servant. Shows the humility of all of us required as disciples of Jesus. The humility of what it takes to follow Jesus, even if we've done it for a long time. We're still a servant, and we are still learning. And no matter what position or rank we are as followers of Jesus, even for the half-brother, that's pretty close, even if we followed Christ. Here's why I want to do this. And if you're a parent, you can say amen to this, I'm sure, or a grandparent. Have you ever been asked, or have you asked somebody this? You're hearing me, but you're not listening to me. In James's day, you actually you were forced to listen because most of the proclamation, most of the proclamation was oral. Only a fraction, very small population of the day in Jesus' day could read. And people had to, you had to listen uh, in that day. All communication of the gospel was oral, and they met together in house churches, and their listening was imperative of that day. Um, those who were not disciplined in listening ran the risk of spiritual impoverishment. And it's not too dramatic to say that early listeners gained from themselves a life-giving spiritual advantage. James, in, the, in this challenge to this, to this church, in the first century flock of the church, James has his finger, puts his finger on a great need of the church today. Because many of us are non-listeners. There's a psychologist named Paul Tournier. He says that he says memorably said this. He said, and when I read this, I, you know, took this to heart. Listen to the conversations of our world between nations as well as between couples. They are, for the most part, dialogues of the deaf. Billions of words are produced every second, but only a fraction is heard. All of us regularly have conversations in which we're speaking, but the vacant eyes of our hearers and their body language indicate that they don't hear. Sometimes our listeners are on another planet. Have you heard that phrase? Sometimes so self-consumed that they just can't listen. They just cannot listen. Other times they're so intent on what they want to say next that they're not catching a word we are saying. And sometimes it's us on the receiving end of this where we don't listen. Maybe it's because we've got so many long-held stubborn opinions. But could it be, church, that we sometimes are wrong? Why are we such poor listeners? One of the reasons is that we are so busy, I think. Our busyness substitutes frenzy for the conversation. It wrecks our relationships. It fills our calendars and empties our lives of the ability to listen to anything and turns us away from our little lowercase g gods. The visual media also feeds our incapability to concentrate. The TV networks have learned that Americans' tension span is very brief and they helped it make it that way, in fact. Watch a typical cop show or sitcom and you'll discover that a few scenes last 
10 or 15 seconds. A culture so dependent on visual changes to keep his attention has difficulty concentrating on anything, especially the unordained Word of God. This is why Aldi Stevenson, when he addressed the students at Princeton, said, I understand that I am here to speak and you're here to listen. Let's hope we both finish at the same time. Zeno, the Stoic philosopher, said, We have two ears and one mouth. Therefore, we should listen twice as much as we speak. And the rabbis put it even better. They said, this is the reason why you have two ears and only one mouth, that we may hear more and speak less. The ears are always open, ever ready to receive instruction, but the tongue is surrounded with a double row of teeth to hedge it in and keep it within proper bounds. If you're a parent today, you've probably seen this from probably one of your children or Maybe you are on the receiving end of this as well. You've probably been in this scenario, right? You're a parent, you, you're, you've got your kid maybe on the couch, right? And you're in the same room. You're speaking to your kids and they're preoccupied in another world. A tablet, a phone, or a device, etc. And you are, you are just simply background noise. So you go over there and you want to get your child's attention. And you say, you aren't listening to me. And they're hearing you, hearing you with just the simple, uh-huh, uh-huh, kind of, you're talking to them, but uh-huh, you know, right, uh-huh, and over and over, but they're not really listening to you. You see, hearing is just simply not enough. Listening implies that they will act on what they hear. People will act on what they hear. And in Jesus in John 13, after washing the disciples' feet, he says, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Listening implies doing, as James and Jesus would indicate, and takes a step further to truly listen, to wait to speak as one definition has it, to listen. It's not so much that we must think on whether we should take the practices of Jesus seriously. It's a matter of will we take them seriously and do them. Love God and love neighbor is a command to be taken serious. We have to do them. Listening is a command that James reminds us of this. And it doesn't take a preacher to indicate it, but there's too much saying on social media. There are far more people interested in hearing what they have to say than what someone else has to say. I often think about this saying, it says, the opposite of listening is not speaking, it's waiting to speak. I want to go to Luke 10, another little story here, maybe you've heard of it before. Luke chapter 10, page 735, the Bible, if you want to go there. Luke chapter 10, story is a very short story, but it's a conversation Jesus has with two sisters and Mary and Martha, and the story follows the story of the Good Samaritan. And the story of the Good Samaritan is a challenging one. The story of the Good Samaritan is all about, am I going to be neighborly to somebody? Will I be neighborly? Um, let's jump in to Luke chapter 10, the story of Mary and Martha. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him, and she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what she said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made, and she came to him and said, Lord... Don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Can you kind of hear that in her voice? Don't you care? 
tell her to help me. <laughs> if you're a sibling, you know this, kind of this, what this goes, how this goes. <clears throat> it says, Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You can see, just visualize this. Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only what? One. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. And the story reminds us of the value of two opposing things that happen when we do not listen. There's a real sense here of not listening and being in the presence of Christ, literally because both of them are right in front of Jesus, right in front of them. And in Jesus' day and in that culture, to sit into somebody's feet indicated a relationship between a disciple and a teacher. And in that day, women weren't supposed to be students, much less a disciple of a rabbi. Mary's life is centered around the main thing being the main thing, church. We must take that to heart to listen. We can get caught up in doing so much that we neglect listening to God's word. We must take time to hear from God, God's word. We must slow down and read the teachings of Jesus, and we must carefully adhere to those teachings of what he has to say. We must slow down, and we must listen through prayer. Practically, we must be sincere listeners of people to put down the smartphone, to turn off Netflix, to slow down the busyness. It's one of the greatest gifts to give. <laughs> Your undivided attention to somebody. Great gift to give. To make time for people. To put away the device and sincerely spend time with people and to get to know who they are. One of the greatest gifts that we could ever give. And to be better listeners, we have to be sincere about listening to the voice of God. Church, I know this to be true in my personal life. I am a better listener when I'm intentionally setting time, carving out to listen to God. I'm a better listener of others when I take time to listen to God first and foremost. Maybe it's the mornings for you, setting a time aside in the mornings to spend in the presence of God by just listening and praying, abiding in His Word. God certainly cares about the condition of our heart and includes the continuous cycle of just being worn out on life. We can do that. And Jesus cares about the, your condition of your heart as well. Where the deeds are coming from, our good works, maybe our blessing of people around us, where those deeds are coming from are just as important as how we're doing them. Jesus cares about the condition of our heart so much that he addresses the fact in, that, in the following passage, the Lord's Prayer, of course, in Luke chapter 11 as well. But back to James for just a minute. Our old friend James, James chapter 1, I'd like to read the following of James 1. It's a stark reminder of the danger of not listening. It says in James 1, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because Human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. It's so important that we not miss what James is saying here, church. An unwillingness to listen, a sinful tongue, and an unrighteous anger are moral evils. If we are slow to hear God's words, quick to speak, and quick to anger, moral filth is not only our lot, but it's our destiny. Just want to go to the minute to the story of Jonah. 
Jonah did not listen to God, and it cost him big time. And before I go there, I would like to say that I love you, church, but it's a hard word. And I don't get to choose what God wants to say. So as a pastor, there are some times where it's uncomfortable and uneasy. But as the story goes, there's this guy named Jonah. Maybe you've heard this story in Sunday school, right? The fish. Jonah's a prophet from God. And God tells him to go to Nineveh and to turn back the city toward God because it has turned wicked. He did everything possible to not do it. He didn't listen. So in fact, he boarded a ship and got one-way ticket the opposite direction. A raging storm begins blowing and they throw him overboard. Mercifully and miraculously, a fish saves him from death. He spends three days in the gully of a massive fish. The fish vomits him out on the shoreline. God gives him another chance. At this time, he obeys and goes to Nineveh. But watch this in verse, verse 10, page 655, if you want to go there. Verse 10 of chapter 3, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them. God said that he would going to bring destruction on the city. When they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong and he became angry. Jonah had an issue with God's grace and mercy. His issue is that he cannot accept the fact that God's grace and mercy would ever extend to the Ninevites. He only wants God's grace and mercy to go to people that he feels are deserving of it. To Jonah's disappointment, disappointed that the fact that God's grace and mercy spared this whole city of this, Jonah's disappointed on this. To Jonah's disappointment and chagrin, they, they do not repent of the message. And God spares the entire city. Or they repent of it. That was his disappointment that they would actually repent of it. And God spares the entire city. And Jonah's response is anger. As an author, Mark Yarbrough says, Jonah became angry, disrespectfully confronted to the Lord, longed to play judge and jury, and then sulked and longed to die when he didn't get his own way. It is simply irrational that he, the renegade prophet, could accept grace, but he couldn't extend it. Jonah would rather die than see the Ninevites get saved. That's how far sin trapped him. We often do the same. While we may not want to die, we place limits on who is deserving of mercy and grace and who is not deserving of mercy. We have built-in compasses of justice and fairness, and we often play God rather than letting God simply just be God. And for instance, there are several reasons for this, for not wanting or caring or seeing mercy extended to others. There's a lot of reasons for this. Maybe another way to put it would be to a lack of willingness to reach the city around us with the mercy of God. Maybe because we think that they don't deserve it. The Ninevites, for Jonah, the Ninevites are those people. The people that come to mind that we'd rather not associate or bother with. Those people that we have labeled or discounted. Jonah has a problem with those people. Do we? Do we see people behind labels that we have unfairly placed on them? 
Jonah has a problem with those people. Do we see the way God sees them? Do we see people, perhaps, maybe it's those people or maybe it's that person in our lives? One person in our lives that we'd rather not have the grace and mercy of God be extended to. The unfortunate thing that we have labeled or set categories to people. Do we see the people the way God sees them? And could it be today that it's not the teenager on their phone? You're not listening to me, but it, could it be us? Could it be that God, the voice of God getting a hold of our heart today and God getting our attention? Could it be that God wants to change and help us to listen our long-held opinions of others and to show that He loves them? And He wants to change that in us. Jonah was so angry with God that he felt it was unfair for God's mercy and grace to come to those whom he'd rather not associate with. And could it be that God desires to change our heart in that process right now? Are there opinions we've formed about people that we will not back down on, that are causing us severe hindrance toward the great commandment to love God and love neighbor? Are there just downright opinions that are causing us to hinder us from this, to love God and one neighbor? What might God be saying that you've always believed about others that maybe it's lodged in the hard drive of your heart and have shaped who you're going to be and how you will treat other people? How big of a fish would need to come in and swallow us in order to rethink some of it? How big of a city would need to repent and believe in God as being real? What big unmissable message from God would, might need to come in order to change our opinion? Who is the person that we have unfortunately stamped an opinion on? Maybe it's early on in life and perhaps closed the door completely shut and written them off, never letting them back in. You see, the very mercy that, and compassion that Jonah despised are the very qualities that Jonah needed to survive. I mean, the whole story is about God's grace and mercy, about how a fish, a fish swallowed him from a raging storm in the middle of the sea and needed grace and mercy. You see, in the prodigal son story in Luke 15, we're told that the younger brother went off and squandered all the wealth and lavish living, all the inheritance gone. The father simply receives his son with joy. That younger brother came back, he squandered the wealth, and the father receives that younger son with joy. Does what gives God joy give you and I joy? Jonah ended up bitter and angry. Didn't listen to God. Do we operate with the same joy? The Ninevites were lost and are now found. The city is repented, rejoicing. But does that mark our Christian life? Does that joy mark our Christian life or is it absent? There's a story about a guy named Michael Frost about a missionary group who went to India to serve the poor in a marginalized village. The group showed up with medical supplies. They were eager to transform the place into one of health and vitality. They first went to people living there and said, we could build a school. We could build a church to help people learn about God. We could build a medical clinic. 
but what do you want us to do for you? And they replied, what we need most is a mailbox. And their head, head scratched through the people who came. And they explained that India not having a mailbox means that you don't have a zip code. And if you don't have a zip code, you don't exist on a map. Even if you're part of 20,000 people and don't have a zip code, you are not recognized. That means you are ineligible for social services from the government. They wanted an identity. Had those missionaries not asked the question, they would have never, and questioned and listened, they would have never known that this was the, great, the people's greatest need. It may sound simple, but getting this village a mailbox was no small task. It took the missionaries two years to work through the bureaucracy, to get them a zip code. But when they did, the village began to transform. I wonder today, maybe it's not the teenage kids or middle school, elementary school kids, or get our attention. Maybe it's not them who need to, God needs to get their attention or we need to get their attention. Maybe God's trying to get ours. And are we truly listening? Are we moving towards human interaction? When, when is hearing not listening? When I think about something less than the glory of God, so when, is he, when I think about something less than the glory of God being seen in this church, hearing becomes listening when we move toward joy-filled mercy. Hearing becomes listening when our lives are filled with joy rather than anger. Hearing becomes listening when we move past those long-held opinions and move toward truly listening. Jonah's story, actually, the end of the story of Jonah ends with a cliffhanger. It ends with just this kind of on, kind of ends the story. We're actually not told Jonah's response to God's grace and mercy. Same with the prodigal son story, kind of left with a cliffhanger as to how the older brother welcomed the younger brother back. A cliffhanger, and today might be the same. Because the reader is invited to respond. And we are invited to respond. Will we choose to listen? In all the world's fallenness and brokenness, and I know our minds go there, fallenness and brokenness, frustration, you name it, brokenness, frustration, lostness, darkness, you name it. But will we choose to lean in, to listen, and choose to believe what God might have to say and what the Lord might be doing in our spirit? Will we choose in all the world's fallenness and brokenness, to face into the wind and to choose to lean in and to listen. Amen. Amen. Uh, we're going to sing a song here in, in a minute. If you'll join me in prayer as the team, would you come up as we pray together as we sing this? If you'll join me in prayer, Father, we come before you now. We open up our hands to you. Lord, uh, we recognize that our hearts are sometimes sick. They are sometimes in need of your mercy. They are some, many times in need of your mercy and grace. And we ask for forgiveness. We repent and turn to you. Lord, we recognize in our own selves that we cannot do this on our own. We need supernatural help. And that's where you come in, your spirit. So help us, your spirit mold us into the people that you're calling us to be. 
the church that you want us to be and the kind of folks that you're asking of us to be. Lord, we, we're asking that you humbly and uh, move and mold in our heart. Help us to listen. To embrace silence and to listen to people. We thank you. And your son's powerful and mighty, strong, wonderful name, the church all said together. Amen. If you'll stand with us, if you're able.